Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to War Room. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Associate Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and Editor-in-Chief of War Room. When we talk about the national security enterprise in the United States, it's a sprawling and influential sector in government, industry, academia, and think tanks. And when you look at the people who work in national security, the demographics can be striking. It turns out that, quote, national security doesn't look like America. But how can we understand and address this challenge? It has, and that's been an increasing topic of conversation advocacy, and action over the past few years, with many individuals and organizations participating. So I'm here in the studio today with Lauren Buita, founder and CEO of Girl Security. Lauren has a long career in national security as an analyst and a consultant. She's the mom of two as a former fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Truman National Security Project, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. In February 2021, she was named one of the 50 women making the world a better place by InStyle magazine, and she was recently awarded the 21st Century Leader Award by the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Lauren, welcome to War Room. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I always like to start out with sort of definitions or origin stories. So in this case, Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story for the organization Girl Security, uh, which is the, the, you're right, the founder and and CEO of of that and what we're here to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. I I was born and raised in Illinois, rural Illinois, and I had a long interest in things like international affairs and and human conflict and war. And, um, and as I progressed through high school into college, I, you know, my interest in those areas increased. And then junior year of college, the September 11th terrorist attacks happened. I returned back to Illinois and was in Chicago looking for opportunities in what I thought was foreign policy. And I ended up being hired by a national security think tank. It's actually one of the oldest think tanks in the country founded by, as the story goes, Donald Rumsfeld and a group of Chicago businessmen who sat around the lunch table with brown bag lunches, although I doubt they were brown bag lunches, um, and talked about hard security issues. Uh, and so as I was working at the think tank as a policy analyst, my brother was deployed to Iraq. And I saw from a firsthand perspective kind of the implications of how local and personal national security can be. And as a 20-something-year-old who was hanging out at bars on the weekends, I would often talk to my friends about the war in Iraq and the the conversation often went as far as, do you agree or do you not agree with the basis of the war? And so I think the early genesis of Girl Security was really wanting to create a space for young people to learn about national security and to understand how things like war have super local impacts that permeate society. Um, and then as a young woman in national security, um, I often say that um, despite working construction through college, 
I had never confronted so many egregious comments um, or assumptions or actions um, as I did when I was working at a think tank in the policy space specifically. And I think what's so striking about that is um, when you're in a professional setting, you don't expect it. And so you're ill-prepared for it, as I was. And then ultimately, I had a boss at the time who behaved very inappropriately. I had to resign from my position and ended up taking a massive detour where I worked on uh, exclusionary, racially exclusionary land use policies in Chicago and sued the city of Chicago for about 10 years. Uh, so those combination of kind of issues of that personal national security experience, my experience as a young woman in a space where there weren't too many other young women, um, and then taking the detour that I did uh, resulted in girl security in 2016. Great. So 2016, so it's it's not, it's been around for a, for a few years, but not not forever. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the the organization and its sort of mission and and what it's what it's intended to do? Because it's a it's a crowded space when we think about organizations that are dedicated to national security and sort of the pipeline, uh, maybe of the national security enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. So we we couch our mission in forging equity and national security by advancing girls, women, and gender minorities. And we use the phrase equity, which I know is a phrase that folks are using a lot. And, and, and oftentimes on social media, people are asking us to define it. But in our minds, equity means certainly increasing the representation of diverse communities who have been historically underrepresented in national security. But it also means advancing um, more inclusive workforce policies, um, more in, more inclusive understandings of national security, resulting in more inclusive laws and policies. So we're taking a pretty holistic approach to um, to forging equity and national security, as we say. That's I think that's really important. I think about my own my own sort of journey in this in this space as well, and it's it's a really interesting um, maybe time to have to have been in there. I think I was also a junior in college on nine eleven. Um, and so those, like the last 20 years have been quite formative in education and sort of the workplace and things have changed a lot. And then I think in other ways they haven't changed maybe as much as I would like to, to see them. Um, when you are talking to external audiences, say like the war room audience, um, what's the argument that you make for equity and diversity within the national security enterprise. Um, why does this matter? And, you know, what's the, what's the best case that you have uh, for people um, who are maybe skeptical or for people who have benefited from the way things are right now uh, or see maybe the, see the problem or frame the conversation differently than you do? Yeah, it's a challenging conversation to have. I mean, I think in recent years, the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and specifically around women and national security, often begins with statistics uh, reflecting a lack of representation in senior positions. And at Girl Security, we're kind of flipping that around and, and not necessarily saying why we need more women or more diverse communities in national security, but why haven't there been more diverse communities represented in national security, or at least modern national security for 100 plus years. And so that's where we kind of start from the root causes. I kind of talk about our model as early intervention. You know, if we can start understanding the, the root causes of a lack of diversity in national security that begin well before college, um, we can we can, first of all, gather more data about why diversity and national security matters, um, but we can also develop better interventions to catalyze more diversity and national security over the next 10, 20 years. 
I mean, I think there's plenty of kind of corporate statistics around the importance of diversity in teams, um, more innovative outcomes, more profitability. Um, and I think all of that data will be yielded in the near term. But in a most kind of anecdotal or personal way, when, when I'm sitting with girls and women, uh, let's say a first generation uh, Iraqi American girl who came here five years ago, and she's now committed to securing her nation, her understanding of national security, in my mind, is far more advanced than some of the folks that I work with mm -hmm. in the field. Um, and so what I often try to tell people is, is uh, a lot of the girls and women in our program are kind of the ultimate security practitioners. They've lived the experience of national security decisions. Um, and so therefore, their unique insights are unparalleled um, in a field where there's much more academic study, which is very important. But it's also bringing those lived experiences of all different communities impacted by national security to the table. I think one of the things um, that's that's striking about what you just said and about um, what from what I understand of the organization too, is this really intentional choice to connect the the personal to the national security um, sort of enterprise writ large, and really to focus on on girls on middle and high school aged aged girls who maybe don't know, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, what the, what national security is or what it means, don't know all the opportunities that might, might be there. And then also a focus on underserved and under-resourced communities. So not just uh, girls and women, but uh, really pulling in uh, sort of intersectional identities as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the choices that your organization has made um, in, in those regards? Like why, why those populations and, and why these specific uh, these specific girls and women? Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple different parts to this answer. I think the first is for a very long time, national security has kind of been this exclusive realm, right? The most powerful, consequential realm, as you've noted. And I think therefore we've done a, a poor job of defining pathways into national security for that reason. And then there's also, you know, kind of the the um, the narrative around the intelligence community and the need for um, you know, secrecy and, and those sorts of things. So I think we've done a, a pretty poor job of educating young people about what pathways international security look like. So for us, that's kind of the first step in our program is just equipping those points of impact, which for us begin in high school, whether it's teachers or career guidance counselors, social workers with what do pathways international security actually look like? Uh, because for most young people, as you noted, national security is just not on their radar. And on top of that, you're confronting both the partisanship that comes with national security, although it should be the most nonpartisan issue, on top of the fact that perceptions remain about the role of women in security. So you have families and communities who also have really strong perceptions about the prospect of their, their daughter going into a field like national mm -hmm. security. And we're often told by young women in our program, my family member is telling me not to go into this space, or my peers are saying, what are you doing here? Um, so there are those kind of maybe... Uh, more abstract ideas that we're often confronting. But from a practical perspective, um, other fields have taken this approach of what they call occupational identity, the understanding that adolescents um, have developed the cognition and the approach to start thinking about their occupational identity sooner. And so if we aren't reaching back into high school, we're waiting, we're hoping young people have the opportunity to go to college where they might also encounter something like national security. And if they don't do that, we're losing a huge swath of the population 
um, and specifically for girls and women who have remained underrepresented, if they're not seeing women in national security, if they don't know about pathways, if they don't have access, access to supportive tools like mentorship or sponsorship, the likelihood of them advancing into the space is very low. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this play out in other fields like STEM. Uh, where, you know, again, uh, you see a a rise in girls' interest in middle school and then a significant drop-off in high school, which is why that kind of bridge between high school and undergraduate is where we point our arrow, because it's where all of the data is tracking the most impactful programs for for kind of diversifying a pipeline um, are having the greatest impact. It's it's when people start asking you, right, what do you want to do and what Mm -hmm. do you want to be and how how do you envision yourself sort of in the world and what interests you. Um, and again, I, I it, it's hard for me to not think about my own experience at a women's college, um, you know, showing up at, in grad school to study military history and not understanding that that was sort of a strange thing because it was just what I liked and it was what people had encouraged me, you know, had encouraged me to do. Um, and, and it's hard to pinpoint a moment, but it's easy to pinpoint the environment that I was in that allowed me to make those those choices. Well, um, I was just going to add in as well. There's also, you know, I, I think of sitting in a sixth grade class prior to COVID and I'm sitting next to a sixth grade girl and she's looking through something like a highlights magazine. And there was a whole piece on cybersecurity. Uh, and so this was, you know, year three into the program. There's also the reality that there are issues, you know, national security issues that are, that are, you know, front and center in girls' lives. So mm-hmm. even just from a public education perspective, making an understanding of national security accessible to them sooner um, can have kind of that personal security benefit, but also the kind of civic engagement benefit as well. Sure. And I was I was wondering, as, as you were saying that, is quote unquote national security a concept that resonates? Uh, or is it um, even... I don't know, even 15 years in, I find it really abstract sometimes and hard to get a handle on. Um, and so is is that, is there a natural sort of expression of, of interest in national security writ large or in certain fields where you say, oh, I'm interested in computers and they, and, and you can say, there's a, there's an entire slew of things that, you know, that are related to computers and cybersecurity and national security, or I'm interested in climate change or water rights or whatever it is. Um, so I'm wondering, is, is it the abstract to the concrete or the or the other way around? I would say it's all of the above. You know, we, we are, all of our programming is kind of identity centered. So we start every conversation with how does your identity shape your understanding of national security? And we do a really, we try really hard not to tell girls what to think. We try to explain how national security has been defined through particular lenses and then create space for them to define it for themselves. And most oftentimes they're drawing from personal experience. Right now, you know, social justice is how they define national security or climate or cyber or disinformation. Um, so they kind of they, they cast a pretty broad net with respect to what national security is in terms of how they see it. But I think to your point, how do we operate as an organization? We try to tell young people Every career will be shaped by national security, you know, whether it's cyber, automation, or climate, or other challenges that we confront. So even if you don't choose a career and kind of a typical national security pathway, understanding how national security shapes the environment in which you'll find yourself can be very mm-hmm. valuable. And most oftentimes, they eventually move into a space where they're working in what we would consider to be kind of more of a national security pathway. Uh, so it, it works a, a, a few different ways, but I think the most important 
thing for increasing representation in any field is creating a sense of belonging, which I think historically the national security community, in my experience, didn't do a very good job of. And so creating that space up front in adolescence can have a really catalyzing effect, which we've we've seen. That's really interesting. Um, to take it from the abstract to the concrete, um, I'm wondering if you have a, a sort of favorite or an illustrative example of the work that the organization has done or is doing. Uh, is there a success story that you like to talk about or that you would attach to um, so, our, so our listeners can sort of get a sense of, of what you do and, and how you do your work? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many stories like this. It's hard <laughs> to choose one, but uh, we have one young woman who began as a mentee in high school. And uh, at the time that she enrolled, uh, her her parents were um, not yet citizens. And so she spent much of her high school career worried about whether her parents might be detained. Uh, she is a U.S. citizen, and she went on to pursue and continues to pursue her studies in national security with the hopes of re- you know, kind of shaping immigration policy, and most recently had an internship at the Department of Energy. Um, and similarly, we have a young fellow right now who will shortly be publishing a piece on her experience, so this will be in the public domain, who, as I noted, she's uh, an Iraqi-American, and she's coming into this space with this really complicated experience of being treated um, strangely by her peers, who are wondering why she wants to serve in national security, mm-hmm. and strangely by her family, who wonders why she wants to serve in national security. And she's persistent. Uh, so we see all of these really wonderful stories. Um, and actually, our very first mentee, the first person I went into a high school class, um, was sitting in the back of the classroom, and I saw her sort of perched up. And afterwards, her teacher came up to me and said, she's been writing papers about military history for the last four years. She was going to go into modern dance. So now she's just graduated from George Washington. You know, she's already has several internships and has a career path ahead of her. So I think it's it's just the idea that putting something on the menu is can can not just shape their lives, but also totally change the trajectory of representation in this field. I think I really like the idea of of the sort of early interventions and thinking about the the questions flip like you said sort of flipping the script and, and asking you know what have been the obstacles and how can we remove them how can we remove barriers rather than just trying to like make the case over and over and over that diversity matters or inclusion matters or representation matters even though we have pretty good data that all of those things do in fact do in fact matter so just tackling tackling the 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 challenges or the obstacles um, I think is a is a really interesting and maybe maybe more effective <laughs> approach than trying to convince uh, convince skeptics that that your your position is is the correct one. Um, I'm wondering, from your point of view as the as the CEO and the founder of the organization, uh, what's your vision for the next for the next few years for girl security? Oh goodness, we have there's so many visions. <laughs> visions abound. Um, I think generally growing capacity to serve more participants. I mean, in our fellows program. We had a, over 150 applicants in 25 spots um, that we want to change that. We want to be able to accommodate every single applicant. We want to create more tracks. You know, we have mentors and mentees who are ages 14 to 26 and up. So creating more tracks for learning and training um, and networking so that as they advance through their undergraduate or career into their next phase, they have continued support. I think building partnerships as well, it's crucial to the work that we do because we can't be an octopus. So we really require different types of partnerships to help us 
um, continue to advance girls and women into the spaces and pathways that they seek. Um, so I think that's generally what we we hope to be able to do. And then I think uh, with the launch of a new website shortly, we're creating sort of a think tank for uh, that will reflect similarly to think tanks in Washington, D.C., featuring girls and, and young people in our program, their ideas on national security issues. So I think it's also that sense of sponsorship is creating space and value for their voices on issues that they will actually be the practitioners confronting them. Um, and so we're hopeful that we can also build build support for um, this type of work. That's fantastic. If you were going to rewind and like go back in time and, and start it all over again, um, what would you what would you do differently, or what would you what would you change about what you've done so far? Oh my goodness, that's a tough one. I think I wouldn't have felt the need to build consensus around the model as quickly as I felt I needed to, um, because it it confronted me with some narratives that I just wasn't prepared to deal with specifically around pre-existing assumptions around women, girls and women in security. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're starting a nonprofit, there's so many things the books don't tell you, and it's quite a vulnerable space. And so I think I would have probably worked more in isolation for a period of time before being as outwardly focused with the model as I was. It's really interesting. I think, again, like the, um, the intersection of the the personal and the communal um, and the experiences and the assumptions, like all of that is sort of feeding into, into this space. I think about how hard it can be to like, to go up against assumptions and perceptions and feel like you're just like bashing your head against a wall sometimes. Um, and sometimes like what you need to do is put your head down and, and do the work and, yep. and get it out there uh, and, and really act. Um if our listeners are interested in girl security and learning sort of more about what you do and, and the, the, the things that your organization offers and is working on um, or are interested in, in learning more, or getting involved, uh, where should they go? What should they, what should they do? Absolutely. To visit girlsecurity.org is the best way to get involved and follow us on social media at girl security underscore, <laughs> have to throw that in there, underscore. <laughs> Um, that's the best way to get involved. And we're continuously looking for mentors. You know, we will pair, we will be at over 800 mentees this year. And so we're always looking for mentors to spend six months uh, uh, mentoring a young person as part of this program. That's fantastic. Um, I've had, I've had a couple of really interesting conversations with folks uh, and it's been, it's been delightful really to talk to, uh, to talk to young people who are Right, interested and optimistic, and um, and really excited and energetic uh, about about the future and what what is possible. Um, so again, girlsecurity.org online, um, and I want to give you the, an opportunity, sort of, to to close out with any um, anything that you'd like for our listeners uh, to leave them with, or, or thoughts, or or ideas. I mean, I just, I, I, I often just think of a very simple notion, which is that young people's voices matter in national security. Uh, that's really the most basic kind of impassioned plea I can make. Their voices matter and what they have to say is really important in this space. So I would just encourage folks to talk to their kids or young people in their lives about what national security means. And I think they'll be surprised by their depth of understanding of, of the field. Yeah, if we think about 
underrepresented voices in national security. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole swath right of folks uh, who are who are children or teenagers, people who haven't yet entered the the workforce officially, uh, and and certainly their lives and their futures are affected by the decisions and the policies that are that are being put in place uh, right now. So I think that's I think that's a really inspiring note uh, to to end on. Um, and so as today's podcast comes to a close, I'd like to really thank Lauren Buda uh, once again for joining us in the studio today. And I'd like to, of course, thank our listeners as well. Uh, send us your comments on this podcast or others, and we'd love to hear your suggestions or ideas for future podcasts as well. We definitely want to hear from you. If you've not already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to War Room via our website, which will put updates and content directly in your inbox. And you can also subscribe to the podcast, A Better Piece, on the podcatcher of your choice. If you would rate and review the podcast, that helps other people find us as well. And we look forward to having you all again with us soon. So Lauren, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And until next time from War Room, I'm Jackie Witt. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.